Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 68. Psalm 68, as we continue our study through the Psalms. This is a study which was begun uh, by John Carroll, uh, the previous associate pastor in this congregation. And I picked up uh, when I came right where he left off, and we're continuing periodically to march uh, in the evenings through uh, the book of Psalms. Uh, Perhaps uh, uh, your curiosity has been piqued this evening because of the sermon title Um, as it's printed in the bulletin, Surf and Turf. Uh, This has nothing to do with Duck Dynasty this week, I reassure you. Uh, But, uh, you know, it does uh, have some relevance to all of us here. Uh, Each of us at some point and in some way in our lives, as you're turning to Psalm 68, let me say, you you learn uh, formally or informally what's called restaurant etiquette. Uh, My father was very keen to make sure when I was growing up that I knew something of restaurant etiquette. And and we would go to the big city of Augusta, Georgia uh, several times a year, and we would go to a certain restaurant, and there we would enjoy a nice meal. And it was a a wonderful outing um, uh, to have together as a family. And I learned the three basic principles of restaurant etiquette. One is, is that you don't order first. Uh, The second is, is that you don't order too much. And then the third and most important is, is that you don't order too expensive an item off of the menu. Now, for you children, make sure that you take that to heart. That's you don't order first and you don't order too much and you don't order more than you should uh, proportional uh, to what others order uh, as far as the money goes. So this meant that in my early years, as I opened up the the restaurant menu, I would admire certain things from afar that I would never taste. And one of those was surf and turf. You know, at a young age, you're not really quite sure what that means. Is that like sea sand and dirt? Uh, Then you grow up and you learn, no, this is some sort of combination of seafood and land item. And usually it's that best combination of shrimp and steak. Now, you know, an Old Testament believer could not eat surf and turf. Uh, The surf part, shrimp, was not allowed under Old Testament dietary laws. And and I can say uh, quite from the heart, praise the Lord that we're no longer under that uh, very burdensome dispensation. Not that it's a sin to forbid uh, the eating of shrimp, but it sure is an inconvenience. And it makes you a peculiar people. And uh, we're thankful to have the fulfillment of that and the spiritual peculiarity and blessing of the Christian life uh, rather than just a symbolic one. Uh, Surf and turf uh, can pop up at the most interesting of occasions. It it can be an item which uh, delights the soul. Did you know that at Clemson University back in in the late 70s and early 80s, exam week had only one happiness, and that was one supper meal in the cafeteria of surf and turf, all you can eat. And I can remember as a young college student thinking that exams were really pretty nice. It was the best meal of the year. Now, Psalm 68 really doesn't have anything to do directly with surf and turf, but you know um, it does mention in verse 22 that God pulls his enemies up out of the depths of the sea so that he can defeat them again on land and let his people participate in defeating them once again. It's a uh, ultimate symbol of the Lord's triumph uh, over his enemies. 
Psalm 68 is all about the triumph of God. And His people process this reality as they would sing this psalm about His triumphs over all of His and our enemies. God wins on land. And God also wins on the sea. And that's not only what our sermon title is all about, but the topic this evening of Psalm 68. Hear the word of the Lord inspired and inerrant to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so shall you drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before Him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. God settles in the the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when You went out before Your people, when You marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you, or through you, men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver as pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. The mount of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for His abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now at the sanctuary. You ascend on high leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men and even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belongs deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of His enemies, the hairy crown of Him who walks in His guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession 
is seen, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation. The Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead. The princes of Judah in their throng. The princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God. The power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds. The herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the people who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that your Holy Spirit might bless us now as we seek to understand this text which He has inspired. May you speak it even, we pray, O God, into our hearts, and we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 68 is labeled a psalm of David, a song, uh, as we have seen on previous occasions, the same. But this song stands out as a mountain peak compared to all the 150 others before it. It has some length, more than the psalm uh, before that we looked at in a previous week. But it's not as long as Psalm 119. It's not its length. It's not even the range of its vocabulary that makes it utterly unique. This psalm is known for its strong an unparalleled emphasis upon the triumph of God. Feeling a little down? Depressed by the newspaper or the things that you read on the Internet? Then go to Psalm 68 and you will be reminded again that God wins for us and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The psalm breaks down into three major sections and themes or at least under the hand of the preacher, it must break down, it seems, in three. And the first section teaches us that God triumphs for us. It's a basic lesson our hearts need to learn over and over again. In the first six verses, we read that God will triumph in the future. It's looking down the portal of time, looking towards that which is to come, and it's an affirmation of assurance that God indeed will triumph. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate Him shall flee before Him. You shall drive them away. 
The wicked shall perish before God. The righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt. They shall be jubilant. It's speaking emphatically about the future. That God, our God, is the one who is not weak, whose end and purpose shall be accomplished. The future is not contingent and in doubt as if it might not ever happen and God might lose. Rather, this is a song, a psalm of David about the triumph of God. Oh, there's been great debate over whether this future aspect and orientation, this unshakable confidence in God's triumph is perhaps being written because David is writing near the uh, end of his time of triumphing over his enemies and establishing himself and his people in the land. And indeed, that might be the historical occasion on which it was written. We are not told explicitly, and so we don't know for sure. But the theological context is absolutely clear. God's triumph in the future is a function of who He is that is communicated to us by the range of the terms for God that are used in this text. He is said to be El. That is the one who is power. And so God's Semitic name is used. And if that's not enough, he's Elohim. He is power upon power, a, a plurality of powers. He is the most powerful one that can be conceived of by the human mind. But his Jewish name is also used. Yahweh. And there's even that favorite rap name for God, I call it, just Yah. As if the writer was so excited he couldn't finish the rest of the word. It's an interesting psalm. El Shaddai is used in this particular passage. It's, it's one that speaks over and over in a variety of facets about the power and might and triumph of our God. And so because of God we know that the future is secure. But you know, we're little finite creatures. We're little people. Even the tallest and largest among us, we're just little folks compared to all the big wide world out there. And we are timid and we need reassurance. We need confidence imparted to us that our future is secure in God. And so we next hear in verses 7 to 14 that we can know that God triumphs because He has triumphed. He particularly has triumphed in the Exodus. And so there we read, about God, and we are called to sing praises to Him because of the triumph that He's exercised and displayed dramatically in the past. Verse 7, O God, when You went out before Your people, when You marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the One of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad, you restored your inheritance as it languished. The psalmist sings on and on and on about the Exodus triumph. And did you catch the language? It's not just that his people went through the wilderness. It's that God marched through the wilderness. He is the one who marched through. They march after him. He is the one who leads the way. And as he steps, the earth that he has created, it shakes and it pours forth its abundance in rain before God, 
before the God of Sinai, before God, before the God of Israel. Oh, in this singing, it's beat over and over and over again into our hearts that God did triumph and He saw His people safely through so that we might be reassured that He will triumph again and that He will see us safely through. And then the focus in verse 15 falls upon Jerusalem and upon His triumph in Jerusalem particularly. Perhaps this is signaling to us historically that this occurs or this this psalm is written and sung after Israel had taken under the leadership of David Jerusalem and his uh, Mount Zion had been established for the worship of our Heavenly Father. O mountain of God, O many-peaked mountain, why do you look in hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for His abode? O the mountain of Bashan and those that oppose Israel is contrasted with the mountain of Zion where the Lord has chosen to dwell. And we read here of the triumph of God's people, that the chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands, and that God is among them just like He was among them in leading them as He marched through the wilderness, so too as they march into battle and they triumph in the land of promise. God Himself is among them. And now He is in the sanctuary. And His triumph is described in verse 18 in terms that would ring many bells for people of that day, but yet perhaps seem a little bit foreign to us. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. And so as Israel subdues her enemies, as what really is happening is that God is subduing all of His and our enemies. And as they take over that great city, and as they march up, and as Zion becomes the possession of the people of God in that time, in that place in which the Lord had prepared a a visible prophecy fulfilled so that His temple might be established into which his son would walk and whose establishment he would fulfill by taking on flesh and dwelling among us and securing our salvation. In just that place, God is seen to be triumphant. It's not just that he takes the mountain. It's not just that his horses and chariots are triumphant. It is rather that he captures the city And He takes that place and all of its bounty and all of its booty and all of its people become His possession. And so He receives gifts from them as they tremblingly turn over to Him all that they possess. The Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the same Spirit, then speaks, as it were, by alluding to this passage and quoting it, He speaks of the next step in the normally known process of a triumphant king. As David receives all this booty, as God Himself is receiving it as it were, as a foreshadow 
through which Christ our Lord in His triumph on the cross would receive booty and come to rightly from His Father possess all the world. So He turns and He blesses His people. That which He receives in booty, the triumphant King distributes back to His people, to His warriors. And even as we sing and as we hear to the women who take these things and divide them up for use in their villages and homes. Oh, God is triumphant in the securing of Jerusalem and in the securing of a legacy for himself. And so David, halfway through the psalm, leads us knowing the fact down to the depths of our soul that God triumphs for us. And then he reinforces that truth by particularly poking us with the truth that God is our Savior. Verses 19 and 20 say, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And then there's a quiet calm that comes over the choir and over the congregation of God as they chew the cud of that truth and try to take it in. That this God who is triumphant is not just one who secures them civilly and politically and militarily, but He secures their soul. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. All of the deliverances in the wilderness from Egypt and also all of the deliverances in the land as they took it and even took Jerusalem, all of this taught them that their lives and their souls were saved by the true and living God, that He is the God of their salvation, and they would be delivered from death. Now remember what all of this land was about. Yes, they were fighting for real estate. Yes, they were taking out the sword and fighting mighty battles by the power of God. But it was not about the real estate. It was not about possessing one sort of vessel in their home versus another, taken in booty from a triumphant battle. All of it, all of it was a lived-out parable, a great opera teaching and pointing to the fact of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that His triumph would be great and that His blessings and His salvation to His people would be secure and true. Oh, David sings to our hearts that we are saved in Christ and that we can trust in Him. Because you see, in verse 21, everything pivots. But God will strike the heads of His enemies, the hairy crown of Him who walks in His guilty way. And then we are told that He even lets us partake in the triumphs of victory that He Himself has secured. That's where the language about pulling them out of the oceans and, and even letting the puppies participate in the triumph over the evil ones uh, comes up in the text. God triumphs, and the one who triumphs is the God of our salvation. And we are next told that we respond to that truth, that precious spiritual truth that is the ground on which we live our Christian lives, even the triumph of Christ. And we are then told that we 
it to march or to process in doxology and praise to our God and to our Lord. Uh, the first procession that is mentioned is Israel. Is she, she marches up to Zion. The city has been taken. The enemy has been subdued. The worship of God has been established in that place. And all of Israel gathers and begins to march in a triumphant parade. God wins the battle. But His people get to participate in the parade celebrating His triumph. And so, verse 24 says, Your procession is seen, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. It's not a military parade where all of the implements of war are being displayed for the grandizement of the leader and and his military prowess. But this is a spiritual procession, a procession towards the sanctuary of God that he might be worshipped and thanked for this great salvation and forgiveness that he brings. Notice that the warriors are not in front, but it's the singers in verse 25. The musicians are in at the last, and and that's a little hint for us. You know, we oftentimes read into the text, or are tempted to, particularly in the Psalms, where there's language about singing and there's language about instrumentality. And we forget that instrumentality is used in several different ways in the Old Testament. Particularly the most dramatic use of instrumentality in temple worship is in a concophony of musical sound and praise to God, which occurs not as an end in itself, even less as something aggrandizing the one who is performing or playing, but rather it's associated with the sacrifice and the the bleeding uh, victim being placed upon the altar of God. Oh, as the as the fire and the smoke go up, There's a a foretaste of heaven even for our ears as they hear something of the glorious sounds that take us in our mind and heart and senses to the very throne of heaven. Oh, we, we see Israel marching up to Zion to the worship of God, processing in the triumph of God, spiritual as God is blessed by the congregation in verse 26. His name is praised from the least of them, even Benjamin, to the greatest of them, Judah. And even even Naphtali is also there. Every tribe of Israel, every aspect of the people of God, from those of the most important and royal family to those of the most humble through whom God shines His own power most clearly. By contrast, they are all there marching up to Zion to enter the sanctuary and sing His praise. But it's not just Israel who's there in that great possession or procession. We also hear that there are others, strangers and aliens, who are strangers and aliens no more, Because they are drawn like moths to a flame. They come from who knows where and afar. 
And they gather to that place to also process up to the sanctuary of God. Oh, summon your power, verse 28 says, O God. The power, O God, by which you have worked for us because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. And so the nations begin coming. From every tongue and tribe and people and nation they will come. Here we see something of, of an Old Testament hors d'oeuvre, of an Old Testament laying down to the foundation truth that the goal of Israel, the purpose of Israel, is not merely and narrowly in herself. Abraham is blessed to be a blessing to the nations. And so all the nations are drawn and from them peoples come. Oh, there are still evil ones in the nations. The beasts in verse 30. The bulls. All the sons of Israel would know who they are. But it's tactfully done in this song. Their minds would go to Egypt. Their minds would go to the powers of Babylon on either end of the great king's road. Those two opposite poles on either side of Israel always struggling for control and domination and stepping on the people of God in the process. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. Not a stretching out defiant with a fist, but a hand to God stretched out to receive the blessings of salvation. Here, we read of the kingdoms of the earth coming and singing the praise of God. The kings of the nations and the peoples of the nations elect march up to Zion as well, all the way down to verse 33. And so here there's hope for you and me. There's hope for us that we too might be accepted at the very throne of God. When we knock on the gates of heaven one day and we are asked, why should I let you in? We have an answer. And the answer is not in our heritage. And the answer is not in our goodness. And the answer is not in our power. The answer is in our saving God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He has come to save sinners like us of every people and of every tribe. And so we come by the grace of God. We come drawn to worship Him. Changed from the inside out. This great triumphant work of Jesus being applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Our lives change. Our steps give a new direction. Our purpose in life Utterly and fundamentally redefined. We process in praise to God. Ascribing Him power as we sing Him praise. Announcing His majesty over all of Israel. Including, including those wild olive branches grafted in. You see, God's power is not just over the Jews. And God's power is not just over some real estate in Palestine. His power, in verse 34, is in the skies. It covers 
all the circle of the earth. And so every nation is His and will be seen to be His. And so David ends with that memorable line, more memorable than any song of the Beatles. Awesome is God from His sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to His people. Blessed be God. Awesome is God. Blessed be God. And that song should fill our lives. Oh, there's a looking back that we might look forward and be reassured of the triumph of God. And there's a looking down to the roots and the bedrock of our salvation. And there we see in this psalm that it's in none other than our saving God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, sent to save our souls, that we might process and march and live with Him forever in that sanctuary of adoration and praise. Jesus triumphs. Jesus saves us. And Jesus leads us out of bondage and into heavenly, joyful rest. That's good news. Do you hear it? Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that Your Word might have its way with us in heart and life. We pray that our hearts might be reassured and that our small tremblings, by Your grace, might be turned to steps and shouts and songs of praise that we might live for You now and forevermore. For in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.